0: We're going to continue on in our series in the Ten Commandments, um, and I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter five. I've been reading the Ten Commandments from Exodus twenty. I just switched to the other one, so you can hear hear the other one. is slightly, slightly different. Um, and then I'll read from Matthew chapter five. I we did not plan missions month with the Ten Commandments series. Just to be clear. Um, I said, hey, I'm preaching on to the Ten Commandments, and the missions team said, hey, we're doing missions month. And I was like, okay. I do not know how they fit together. So you can figure that out. We can figure it out together. Today we're going to be on the Seventh Commandment, um, which is the commandment against adultery. I'm going to read the whole of the Ten Commandments here from Deuteronomy chapter 5. It'll be on the screen, as will the passage from Matthew chapter 5. to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make the name take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. 6 days you shall labor and do all your work, but the 7th day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is from Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' teaching, a little section of Jesus' teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. God, we thank you for speaking to us. God, we thank you that we have your word. We have it easily accessible in our own language for free anytime we want. And that is such a gift. I thank you that your word is revelation of you. I pray that we would listen to your Holy Spirit so that we would see and hear what the word is revealing to us about you and about us. God, would you help me by your spirit to speak only those things and not to get lost speaking about other things. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's let's go to church and talk about sex, says no one ever. But uh, this is where we are uh, in our week, in our series on the Ten Commandments, as we go through these commandments that God has given to Israel and then to His people, um, sex is a big deal. Um, I, I think that, in some ways, is controversial. Not controversial. Um, sex is everywhere. We live in a highly sexualized culture. We we literally sell products regularly based on sex appeal. Um, you, you can just sort of step back and watch advertising and wonder why are they dressed like that um, to sell whatever acid reflux pills. Um, they probably don't need to be, but that's how we sell things in our culture. Um, and yet, despite it being everywhere, there's some sort of sense that I think about Christians, about people in church, like you people focus on this too much. This is like, y'all need to chill uh, and get a different obsession. Um, the, the truth is the text of the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament spend quite a, quite a deal of time actually talking about sexual immorality as the language that they'll use. If you use like BibleGateway.com, you can search for that phrase. You don't have to trust me. Just look up sexual immorality. And they talk about it a lot in the New Testament. In the New Testament, they are trying to figure out how people like us, Gentiles non-Jewish people read the Jewish law and how they're supposed to obey it or not obey it and they basically don't mention most of it most of the law they don't tell the gentiles they have to obey they but they do say sexual immorality you can't do that and Paul will talk about it this way in letters like 1 Corinthians and otherwise it's a it's a big deal for them and there's no way there's no way around that if you're reading through the bible and I will grant you it's it's likely that the church has done a poor job of talking about other kinds of sin um, the Bible talks a lot about greed for example gluttony stuff that we don't really talk about as much and that maybe that's fair but the Bible is really clear in it's discussion of sex and the attention that it pays to it and so we can't we can't not do that but um, we have very different ways of thinking and talking about sex in the church and then without the church. And our understanding of how to discern whether sex is morally good is, is where sort of the crux of the matter is. How do you discern if a sexual act is morally good or not? For people outside of our church, in our culture, our place and time... The, basically the attitude is mind your business don't get involved in other people's stuff right what what is required is to consent maybe to is consent it's consenting parties everyone involved adults with adults minors with minors needs to be a consenting party and that's really it if there's consent between the persons, then it's, then it's morally good, and you just need to not worry about it so much. And what I would say is that way of thinking about sex is not good enough. It is not clear enough. There's not enough words there. And I, let me give you some examples. Adultery. That, that's the language uh, that's used in the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Generally, people feel pretty bad about adultery in some way. Even though there's two consenting adults involved, outsiders would look and say, not great. And maybe they're not even sure why they, they were saying that, but it, we recognize it's probably bad to break somebody else's marriage bonds. Somebody has been wronged in that exchange even though you have two consenting parties. Because consent is not enough, you need more words. Let me give you a less likely example and grosser why is it wrong for somebody to have sex with their grandmother now to be clear it is okay I'm, I'm not suggesting it's not I want to I be very and I think everybody agrees on that I don't think anybody disagrees on that but why if they're two consenting adults if it's a young adult and their grandparent why is it wrong for them to have sex you need more words. You've got to add some words. you got to add some language somewhere about consent also not being closely familiarly related or something like that. It's, I can articulate, we can articulate why we think it's wrong. But we can at least say consent is not enough to say. And inside the church now is a sort of different moral universe. It's a different ethical window. And we have a lot more words to say other than consent. Now, to be clear, consent within sexual activity is absolutely necessary. That is necessary. Un, non-consensual sex is never permissible. But we have more to say than that. And what the biblical language is, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the vision that's presented is the The way for knowing if sexual activity is morally good is if it is between a married man and woman. And that's it. The the only vision within the scope of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that very narrow definition. A married man and woman. That's the only place where sex is permitted. And spoken approvingly, and it is to be clear: the Bible approves of that. The Bible is not like "ew, gross, sex." It is saying this is a good, this is a good to be enjoyed within that that context. I'm going to explain why. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think that is the only acceptable definition. The Bible goes out of its way to make clear what that vision is. You can most Famously, read Leviticus 18, which is talking about appropriate sexual behavior, and it will in detail tell you all the people who you cannot have sex with. You cannot have sex with your stepmom, or your daughter-in-law, or your aunt, or blah blah blah, on and on and on. To make very clear, this is the only window, and this is this is why. Three three reasons. The the first, I think, I'll call biological. Um, the focus within the Bible is on life. Life is incredibly important within the the law and the ethics of the biblical vision for how you should live your life. And that seems sort of basic, but we mean this in a really deep and important way. From the very beginning of the the biblical story, one of the first things that God says to humanity is, I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the world with flourishing and multiplying life. That that applies in a lot of ways, non-literal ways. But it also means literally, I want you to fill the world with people, with reproduction. And we would say that the, the context of committed marriage between a man and a woman is the proper grounds for that to happen. Obviously, it's not the only place it does happen, Right? But let, let me just look, let's talk about what happens when there are children outside of that bound. I, I know plenty of kids who are not living with a mom and a dad, who have never lived with both a mom and a dad. They're wonderful. I, I know uh, plenty of single moms. They're awesome, okay? Ask a single mom, any mom, what it's like to parent, a child or children by themselves. It is incredibly difficult. I personally, I have I have four kids and I have a wife. If I had one kid and no wife, I would be broken. I could not make it. It is really, really hard. Can it be done? Yes. Is it being done? Yes. And and are there circumstances and really you where you shouldn't be married, like there's an abusive former spouse yeah for sure but if everything is working as it should where is the space where children where life flourishes best it's in the context of a committed marriage that that's not just opinion that's statistically true one of the best ways you can build wealth in a community is to build stable households it works what, what When we look at, as Christians, as we, when we look at two people of the same gender who have sexual relations, we do not see biological life produced. It's impossible. You can't. You need a man and a woman to produce new human life. Those are the bare facts of the, the nature. And, and remember, again, we are not saying love does not exist in other contexts. We're not saying that a single mom does not know what love means or that a gay couple does not know what love means. That's, that's not the argument. What we're, what we're saying is the proper context biologically for sexual love is a place where life can be reproduced. Physical human life can be reproduced and flourish. And the proper context of that is marriage. Number two, relational. Having sex with somebody is the most radically exposing thing that you can do. You, you cannot be in a more vulnerable position than when you are having sex. You, you are seen in the whole of your body and in a way that otherwise you are hiding yourself. And I would hope for anybody who is sexually active that you bring your emotions that you bring your heart to bear that it is you don't try to draw draw some hard line between sex as merely a physical act the, the best version of sex is physically engaged and emotionally engaged and therefore it's also emotionally exposing it is maximum intimacy cannot be more intimate than that and if you do not have maximum commitment something is wrong because intimacy of that level Demands Commitment to match it. So if you have maximum intimacy and minimal commitment, something is deeply wrong. You are exchanging something with very little safety net. There's nothing to be pledged within it. There's no framework to do that in the fullness of the way that you are supposed to do it. Because you're supposed to do it with a person who has said, I will never leave you. No matter what I see in you. And, by the way, it works the other way. If you're maximally committed and you have minimal intimacy, that's also a problem. It's supposed to be present together. Okay, so biological and relational. The third reason I think that this is the vision for sexual expression in the Bible is theological. And this is is the move that I think Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 5 when he points to marriage... And he says marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. And what's required there is that you have the fullness of this vision to really pick up all that that metaphor is meant to convey to you. Because something is supposed to happen in sexual expression and covenanted love between a man and a woman that tells you things about the nature of reality and the nature of God. Because something is supposed to happen in a union between you and a person who is not like you. That's why the the gendered differentiation actually matters theologically. And the union of two people who are not the same somehow can bring forth a new kind of life. And what Paul is communicating in the Christian perspective of things is that in Christ... You can have union with God. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, a new kind of life is unleashed in the world. And if you don't have the image of this kind of bounded, committed, marital love between a man and a woman, you can't pick up and hear all that Paul is trying to give to you and to convey that this is what life is supposed to be like. Sexual expression is supposed to be in the context of covenantal love between a man and a woman. It is an incredibly narrow vision of sexuality. It is not, for most people, it is not the norm. It is not what they normally experience, gay or straight. They don't usually f- experience all of their sexuality within that context. they falling outside the bounds of this norm that God provides. And then Jesus makes it harder. See, I, I, I said this last week. I wish there at some point along the Ten Commandments, there was some place where there was like a catch your breath zone. Where you're like, yeah, I'm good. I've got this one. But we, we saw it last week. Even with murder, Jesus doesn't even let you have that one where you just, if you just don't physically murder someone, you're in the clear. He, he says it's about much more than that. Here, you can hear him on the Sermon on the Mount taking up this commandment. Don't commit adultery. And I can say, well, great. I've, I've never physically committed adultery uh, against my wife or against somebody else's marriage. I'm good. But Jesus goes further. He, he cracks open your mind and your heart, and he says, this is the place where adultery lives. And if you have looked at somebody with lust, then you have violated the commandment. You're an adulterer, a commandment breaker. And at this point, you know, who's left? Who's left in this vision? You know, lust is the, uh, if you don't know what that means, lust is the not noticing that somebody's attractive. It's the lingering the desiring, the craving, and the seeking to possess in your mind. And most people know what that In fact, I've when I ask my classes, I've yet to have one person volunteer and say they don't know what lust is experientially. Because we all do. So then what is then left? See, the, the definition of proper sexual expression under the teaching of the law and then under the interpreter of the law is so narrow and demanding that the only people who are left to listen are the people who fall outside of those boundaries. Because there isn't anyone who isn't sexually broken. That list is a very short list. You know, it's, I think because sex is so vulnerable It feels so personal and some would say damaging to have somebody stand up and say this, that some portion of every single person, you included, who has some sort of handle on their sexuality, every single person has fallen outside the bounds and is wronged against the law of God. It feels, it it can make you angry. It can make you defensive. I was reading somebody this week, and he said, um, "He said the the Holy God will not enter into negotiations with the creatures, the people that He longs to love, if they are bent on self destruction. God will not, knowing what will harm you." speak to you and say it's fine because he loves you. And so, so the question really then becomes does this God actually know what he's talking about? Can you, can you trust him to actually look and accept what he says about what he sees? You know, Jesus' um, Jesus's instruction on what it means to not be a commandment breaker is, is especially important for people of our place and time. Because we live in a place that is more flooded and, and molded by pornography than any place in the history of humanity. Pornography has always existed. You can find it on cave walls and pottery shards and whatever. But we have pottery shards in our hands that will refresh at the speed of 10,000 images a second. We live in a place where an alarming percentage of children's first exposure to sex is incredibly graphic and often violent sexual pornography. And this, this is a world that mere consent makes. This is what I would argue. We are living in a world that has been created by the ethic that whatever two people agree to is morally good. And I would just simply ask, is that a good world? You... See, the people who can make the pornography can be consenting in the moment, but they never consented with you who watch it. And nobody has asked a child who we legally say has no ability to offer consent. Nobody's checked in with the child's parents while that child is consuming. And I would wager a lot of money that there are quite a few people in this room who live in the dark spaces of their minds, thinking that all is well if they control what their body does with other people and nobody knows what's going on in their mind and on their device. Because consent is all that matters. But when I'm talking, What you're feeling is the truth that you already actively know, which is that something is deeply wrong. The world that you've been living in is not a good one. And you don't want anybody to know about it. If we actually believed in this idea that all this requires consent, we would not have so many people that hide their pornography usage. But people instinctively hide it because they can feel right in the secret places of their heart that's not true. And God will come to you and implicate you, He he will come and tell you bad news that it is bad. Whether, whether it's pornography or anything else outside of this very narrow window, window, he will tell you you're wrong. And you will have some degree of reaction from shame to anger or both. And what you need to hear is that God never comes to you with bad news alone. We think when we hear that message, we think the God who would come and say this to me hates me In fact, that's the only language that most of our world can use to describe a message like that. Is you hate people. That's why you tell them things like that. It it feels almost like hate. Because you're putting something so personal and you're saying, you can't do that. You must be throwing me away. You must be discarding me as if I'm cheap and if I'm nothing. But God is speaking to the the whole of sexually broken humanity and telling you the bad news about what you desire, because he's offering you the good news and the goodness of what he desires for you. God is not discarding his people when he's telling you what is wrong with your sexual life. What he is instead doing is inviting you and offering you a particular kind of a good life, a better life. And the gospel, the good news that he offers is never, if you will just be straight and married, then you will be saved. If you'll just be straight and married and faithful and never look at pornography, then you'll be fine. Then everything is good. Then I will be good with you. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is every single piece of you that you keep in the darkness and parts that you are ashamed of, every part of you that God is saying you should not do that, he has seen every bit of who you are. He's already known all of that about you. And the only kind of people that Jesus ever came for are the sexually broken. So that no person is therefore excluded by what he is telling you in the bad news. Such is the extent of the goodness of the good news. Every single person in this room has their own story of how they have been faithless. How they have abandoned the narrow way that is described by God. They have not lived up to this very narrow vision and very often haven't wanted to live into that narrow vision of a sexually good life. And every single person is being told this morning that Jesus has named himself faithful and true. He has named himself the bridegroom so that you would be his bride. He he has offers you a place in his household he is, he is not disgusted with you he is not disposing of you he has instead said in my house and my father's house there are many rooms and he's invited you to live in them he is not trying to imprison you in a narrow way of being sexually he is saying in this narrow way of being is a kind of freedom that you cannot imagine or receive any place else He is not trying to ensnare you and take your life away and diminish you. He is offering you and inviting you into the maximalization of what life really is. And that life starts in the gospel. It starts in the good news. So you might want to define your life by your sexual appetites, desires, and habits. But what God will offer you instead is a life defined by his own life, which is boundless, it is infinite, it is good, and it is unconquerable. And whatever state you find yourself in, when you hear that good news the first time or the 10,000th time, the offer is still good. So all of us who will push and struggle back against the temptation of a sexuality that has broken and gone wrong, will hear once again that he is the gospel. He is the good news. The faithful and true one who will yet again be faithful and true to you. This, this is a different kind of life. And it is meant to be for the people in this room. But what I think is probably one of the saddest things, and what I think people outside the church do put their finger on correctly, is that a place like this is the most restricted, shame-filled place in their whole life. The people who are struggling deeply with sexual sin, with their sexual desires and habits, can say the least about it in spaces like this. And that is a problem. See, what, what the gospel does is it should bring you to a place of true freedom. And I it haunts me to think how many, especially kids, are in our church and they think the least safe place for them to talk about the hardest things that they are dealing with in their life is this church. They think that this portion of their identity should be hidden most deeply here. It should be the opposite. If If you are caught in a pornography addiction, you know where you should feel most free to talk about that is here. Because theoretically, the people here are equipped to look you in the eye and tell you you are loved deeply by God and he has so much better for you. And I am obligated by vow and by the name of Jesus to walk with you until this thing is broken off of you. They should be an unquestioned ally in their life. If you're somebody who struggles with what it means to be sexually attracted to somebody of the same gender, that should not be something that you should hide in this place. Because who in this room does not know what it means to have their sexual desires aimed in directions they should not be aimed? You should have people who would love you and accept you and welcome you and say, brother, sister, as you figure this out, my house is your house. My table is your table. And I will be with you until every day that your struggle is going has passed. Until you see Jesus face to face. If you have been caught in the grips of what it means... To not be able to control your sexual behavior with somebody that you are not married to. This is the place where you should be able to talk about that. You know what kinds of people Jesus loves in the Gospels? People who do that. Jesus is the one whose genealogy includes Rahab in it. A prostitute. Because he's including all of the sexually broken in his story. And so my fear, my concern is that we might have a bunch of people in this church who could tick the right theological boxes and who don't believe the gospel when it comes to this. 80% of the gospel is not enough. We need 100% of the good news. This is the good news. You are broken and frail, and have frequently rebelled against God. And what what God says about himself is that while you were still a sinner, that's when Jesus died for you. While you're an enemy of God, God approached you to extend friendship. And he will never change who he is. So he will always come. For you. Today, if you are a Christian, if you are a church person, you're a member of this church, whatever, and you have been caught in the grip of sin, of this kind of sin, you need to hear what Paul says is offered by the Spirit of the Lord, and that is freedom. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you do not need to live under the weight of bondage of shame anymore. But instead, you need to be welcomed in in to the freedom that is in Jesus. Hear and believe the gospel. Jesus came for you. And he will set you free again and again and again. And look, if you don't follow Jesus, you really picked an interesting Sunday to come. I I don't know who brought you here. Um, But listen, this is for you as well. Okay? Jesus is offering you a window into a different kind of life. I know that it is different. It's challenging. It challenges every single person who's here. you're, You're not alone in that. But Jesus is offering you his goodness, not his control, his domination and oppression but his goodness and his freedom. And you are being invited into a company of people who together are over and over and over again rediscovering how absolutely and truly good Jesus really is. And if you recognize that today, if you hear that today, that is on offer for you, and you need to accept it. That's it. I'm not telling you today that You need to start cleaning yourself up, stop looking at that stuff, stop dating those people, get this under control, then come see me. What I'm saying is it starts today. It starts now. Right where you are, that's how Jesus wants you. He doesn't want you to execute another self-improvement project. He wants you as you are right now. And he will give you everything. He will not accept you just a little bit, and as you get better, he'll give you a little bit. He doesn't trade like that. All he does is just give you gifts, and he'll give you the whole thing, right now. So if you hear him, receive the goodness of the gospel. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom in Jesus. He will free you from your past, and he will free you into a future defined By his own life. Today the gospel is good enough. For all of us. No matter where we are. All the way down. To the very bottoms. Of our persons. And Jesus. Will be good enough. Until the end. Let me pray for us. Living God. We thank you for being here. For meeting with us here. God I thank you that. Um, you don't just throw us out into the world and say, I hope they figure it out, I hope they figure out a, a way towards a good life. You instead approach us, you you teach us, you communicate to us, and you show us this is the way to a good life. And we, we acknowledge that we have our own thoughts about what the good life looks like. In fact, we feel very strongly about it most of the time. And so we just confess that we are often angry or offended when you tell us we're wrong. And God, I just pray that you would help us to hear who you really are and to believe that you would not lie to us. That you're actually trustworthy and you want to do good to us and do good for us. God, I pray for anybody who's in here who is weighted down by shame, who carries that in their body, God, I pray that they would hear the goodness of the gospel. They would receive the freedom that's in Jesus. And they would be courageous by the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue a life that is shaped around your life. That they would take seriously Jesus' invitation to be separate from anything that would lead them to the grave. And I pray, God, that they would find not just you, but a company of allies and fellow travelers with them to walk with them into freedom. Father, I pray for people that are in here who have never followed you, who have maybe they're here for the first time or they've come a lot or whatever and they've never really turned themselves over to you. God, I, I pray that they would hear and see that there is a way of life for them that is both costly and precious at the same time. It will cost them everything, and yet would be an easily worthwhile trade. I pray that they will see your goodness in all of its glory, and they will reach to you and say, Jesus, please come and get me. Father, let this place be a place of freedom and mercy under your hand. Deliver us more and more into a life defined by you, shaped by you. And I pray that we all together as a people would be able to look one another in the eye and be able to laugh and say, isn't isn't God good? Thank you for doing that here with us faithfully until the day we see you face to face. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.